Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for March 21st, 2022. Here's today's rundown. There are widespread reports of auditors abusing providers. Details just ahead on Auditing Gone Awry. The surge of COVID-19 infections in Europe has the White House worried. The administration is asking Congress for new funding for the federal COVID-19 response and preparedness. Kate Brantley has our legislative update today. We'll also hear from attorney and physician Dr. John K. Hall, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Linnell James with news on the social determinants of health. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Well, last week brought some news that will have financial consequences for many providers. The HRSA program that funded care for uninsured patients with COVID-19 is running out of money, and they'll stop accepting claims tomorrow. While the numbers of COVID patients are down substantially, it is not done. As of March 15th, there were over 20,000 people hospitalized nationwide, and cases of this new variant seem to be rising. Now, we can hope the numbers continue to decline, but there's also hope that Congress will add more funds to this program so providers do not have to start sending bills to patients without coverage. It should be noted this fund also pays for vaccines, and if it's determined that boosters are needed, the lack of funds is sure to have serious consequences. Next, United Healthcare released a notice for the gastroenterologists who are participating providers with Oxford, New York, entitled, Gastroenterologists Must Use Oxford Participating Anesthesiologists. The subheading of the article stated, Oxford, New York gastroenterologists are required to use Oxford participating anesthesiologists. Now, after stating this requirement twice, They go on to note that it only applies to non-emergent office or ASC procedures, and that if a patient signs a consent and agrees to an out-of-network anesthesiologist, then it's allowed. Now, I have no idea why this only applies to UHC Oxford in New York, but there must be an interesting backstory. Last week also brought word that the Part B premiums for Medicare beneficiaries will likely be adjusted downward once CMS announces the final decision on its coverage of Adjuhelm, the Alzheimer's drug. As you recall, premiums went up substantially for 2022 to cover the possible expense of millions of Medicare patients getting infusions. But CMS has proposed only coverage with a clinical trial, so HHS will be adjusting down the premiums. Now, seniors should not go out and put a down payment on that Florida condo they've always dreamed about because the reduction will only be about $10 a month or barely the cost of a gallon of gas. Finally, a word about readmissions. On one of the user groups, a doctor posted two readmission denials his hospital received. Both were patients who were admitted with COVID-19 who were treated and able to be discharged home without oxygen. One returned a week later with COVID-induced myocarditis and was hospitalized 17 days. Another one returned 26 days after discharge with atypical pneumonia and stayed five days. 
In both cases, the insurer denied payment for the second admission. Now, I admit I don't have access to this hospital's contract with the payer to know what it states about readmissions, but in what rational world should a provider be held financially liable for the totally unpreventable complication that may develop after treating the patient exactly to the standard of care and ensuring stability at discharge? This also applies to the payers who claim that prior authorization is not needed for a surgery if it's done as outpatient, and then they go denying it as an inpatient-only surgery. This madness, including what we heard in the pre-chat about unbundling, simply aimed at boostering, excuse me, bolstering payer profits simply has to stop. We need to fight back every time. Appeal, complain to your insurance commissioner. Let's stop letting this happen. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monday Monday. There were a few rumors that the government was going to let the public health emergency, or PHE, expire April 16, 2022. If the PHE expires in April, the federal government will continue its 6.2 increase for Medicaid to each state until June 2022. And we all know that the Medicare audits to come post-PHE will be very interesting as auditors try to audit claims with so many COVID exceptions that have been implemented in varying, varying dates and locations. However, the Biden administration promised a 60-day notice prior to the end of PHE, so, which he did not do on February 15, 2022. Now, this doesn't mean that PAT will or will not be allowed to expire, and if extended again, it will be in effect until July 15, 2022. Now, post-COVID audits, telehealth will be the highly, highly audited post-PAT audit. Auditors and providers defending themselves must bear in mind the local rules in which they are getting audited. For example, during COVID, 19 states implemented payment parity, which requires providers to be reimbursed the same for telehealth visits as in-person visits. Now, some of these payment parities expire once PHE expires. 27 states have no parity. Now, some of the 27 states with no formal parity may have passed parity rules for certain types of services. An example is New York, which does not have payment parity. It does have payment parity, for example, social adult daycare, to name one service. Now, HHS and OIG since COVID have seen a surge of telehealth fraud and abuse to the tune of approximately $1 billion. The Part B telehealth services will be on the metaphoric butcher's block. Here are a couple tips from CMS. To bill an office visit code that occurred via telehealth, like a 99202 through 99215, there must be both an audio and video connection. Without video, the encounter becomes a telephone call, which are codes 
99441-99443. Document in your record whether you had an audio or video, and as good faith, document that it was conducted to stop the spread of COVID and not just for convenience sake. Now, billing for telehealth when the visit was only audio is a humongous source of alleged fraud and overpayment. Another potential pitfall for audits is HCPCS code G2252, which is to be utilized for patients who do not have access to audio and video technology and for medical discussion when the acuity of the patient's problem is not necessarily likely to warrant a visit, but when the needs of the particular patient require more assessment time, such as an 11 to 20 minute discussion from the practitioner, which differs from a G2012. The expansion of telehealth and the relaxation of the rules during PAT were considerable. The majority of it, remember, continues to be temporary. Back to you, Doc. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Kate Brantley, David Glazer, Dr. John K. Hall, and Linnell James. It's Monday. It's March 21st. It's the first full day of spring. And you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference in Austin, Texas, is April 11th through the 13th at the Hyatt Regency. And here's good news. The early bird registration rate has been extended. This conference will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their career. Scheduled speakers include nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org. Register this week for the NPAC conference and take advantage of early bird registration rates. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of thinking that you can just use common sense. So during last week's segment about pricing, Ron Hirsch sent me a note observing that many people mistakenly believe that it's improper to charge anyone less than you charge Medicare. As usual, Ron makes a good point. It seems like everyone knows that you can't charge anyone less than Medicare. But is everybody right? I assume the root of this myth is a belief that when you contract with the government, you must give the government your best price. Honestly, I don't know if that's universally true in the contracting arena, but I know this. It's definitely wrong in the context of Medicare billing. You're permitted to charge someone less than you charge Medicare. The basic principle is that you need to make sure that half of your patients are charged the amount equal to or higher than the amount that Medicare pays. Now, if I'm going to be that specific, I better have some some sort of citation to authority. That's a tough one to say. Well, I do. Now, I don't always read lengthy regulations during this segment, but in this case, I think it's worthwhile. So I'm going to focus on 42 CFR 405.503, which defines a customary charge as a uniform amount 
which the individual physician or other person charges in the majority of cases for a specific medical procedure or service. The regulation, and again, that's 42 CFR 405-503, continues with the following instruction about variation in price. If the individual physician or other person varies his charge for a specific medical procedure or service so that no one amount is charged in the majority of cases, it will be necessary for the carrier to exercise judgment in the establishment of a customary charge for such physician or other person. In making this judgment, an important guide to be utilized when a sufficient volume of data on the physician's or other person's charges is available would be the median or midpoint of his charges, excluding token and substandard charges, as well as exceptional charges on the high side. A significant clustering of charges in the vicinity of a median amount might indicate that a point of such clustering should be taken as the physician or other person's customary charge. So the median charge is very different and that was the end of the regulation, just to be clear. So the median is very different from the mean or the average charge. Let's say you had charges of $10, 11 12 20 and 30 The median is 12 because that's the point where half of the charges are above and half are below. So the average will be higher than that because the 20 and the 30 are going to increase it. So basically, the median is the 50th percentile. Now, the instruction in the regulation leaves a surprising amount of discretion with the contractor. And one of the things that's completely unclear is a very basic question. Is your charge the amount that's on the bill, or is it the amount you would expect to receive as payment in full? So if you send a bill out for $100 and you know that the payer pays you 60% of your bill charges and you're going to get 60 bucks, which is it? Basic question, not answered there. But despite the ambiguity, it's clear that up to half of your patients can be charged less than the Medicare rate without you running afoul of the Medicare law. So Leonard Cohen saying the prescient line, everybody knows that the plague is coming. Everybody knows that it's moving fast. Everybody knows that the plague is coming. Everybody knows that it's moving fast. Everybody knows. I'm not sure if Mr. Cohen was being serious or sarcastic, and I don't think he was thinking about COVID because this was a while ago. But I do know that while that might have been right, sometimes what everybody knows is very, very wrong. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Sitting in today for Tiffany Ferguson, who usually reports on the social determinants of health, is our good friend Linnell James. Good morning, Linnell. What do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Hey, Chuck. Thanks for that uh, kind of welcome. Uh, a lot of interesting things going on in social determinants of health. Uh, I'll start with a shout-out to a friend of mine and colleagues, Silas Buchanan in uh, Cleveland. He was at the HIMSS National Conference. Health Information Management System Society is the fourth largest conference in the country, and it's all about health IT. And Silas was on stage at the Global Health Equity Symposium talking about this topic, social determinants of health. Uh, he and I co-authored an article related to this, the 
Collaboration uh, is key to addressing social determinants of health as background and some interesting links to back up some of the things I'm going to discuss. As part of the kickoff for the entire event with over 30,000 people in the room, uh, Hal Wolf, the CEO of HIMSS, related his story of visiting the Pope in Italy and explaining what HIMSS does for technology for healthcare. And he asked the Pope, what would you like me to work on? And the Pope said, address healthcare disparities. So HIMSS, uh, the direction of the Pope is all over uh, social determinants of health and health equity. As I'll discuss today, some of the other initiatives that kind of tie to health equity, social determinants of health, and will give you a sense of how this is going to be part of the future of coding because, of course, people are going to uh, want to stop making social determinants of health something that comes from grants and make it an integral part of the healthcare system in terms of value-based care payments, fee-for-service, and quality reporting. And let's start at the top. The White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy this year issued an RFI about strengthening community health through technology, and that's just the beginning. Uh, CDC, uh, HRSA, the Health Resources Service Administration, the National Institute of Health, and NCQA are all doing things uh, in this space, uh, whether it's uh, NIH with their Community Engagement Alliance leadership or CDC active with an entire uh, division that's focused on uh, coordination and care. And at HRSA, they have an Office of Health Equity and they have a, ma a Maternal and Child Health Bureau dealing with the maternal issues of healthcare disparities. I say all that just to give you a sense that the broad number of stakeholders are collaborating and working together and are trying to move the ball forward, whether it's HRSA with six pilots over the country, CDC with 42 communities in activity, or the NIH with their SEAL program, Community Engagement Alliance Leadership. Uh, there's a lot of activity in this space. And it's very clear with this much energy all the way from the White House to CMS and CDC, uh, even Weedy, uh, some of you know Weedy from X12 and claims work group for electronic data interchange. It's also involved in health equity and making sure its members, uh, payers and vendors for X12 and claims are becoming aware of where health equity fits. Linnell, thanks very much. Uh, that was Linnell James. Linnell James is a health information innovation lead for Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Linnell's going to be here next Monday sitting in for Tiffany Ferguson. Up next, Kate Brantley and the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Kate Brantley. Thank you, Chuck. Happy to be here. In Biden's State of the Union address, he announced the launch of a test-and-treat initiative where consumers testing positive for COVID at certain pharmacies will be given antiviral therapy by an on-site provider on the spot and at no cost to them. However, there's already a debate about who should be able to prescribe these antiviral pills as HHS began distributing them in the last few weeks. 
The American Medical Association expressed concern about the initiative allowing a provider without an established patient-doctor relationship with the consumer to prescribe this pill. In other words, the AMA is uncomfortable with pharmacists or anyone else without an ongoing and well-established medical relationship with the patient prescribing anything under the initiative. According to the AMA, one of the antivirals to be prescribed has over six pages of drug interactions that would require patients to modify or even stop other prescriptions they are taking. The organization stated that prescribing these without full patient history and ongoing monitoring sets a very dangerous precedent because while these pharmacy-based clinics are equipped to treat simple conditions, COVID and the antiviral medications that treat it are just too complicated for this on-site service. On the flip side, pharmacists believe they should be able to prescribe the antivirals if the initiative hopes to meet its stated goal of providing the most vulnerable and underserved Americans with access to life-saving treatment. Pharmacists believe that expanding the power to prescribe these pills beyond just on-site providers would not only expand access to the initiative, but would also be an obvious and safe choice considering pharmacists' extensive knowledge of medication and side effects. When asked about the reach of the initiative, pharmacists say that not only should the program be expanded to include a lot more pharmacies nationwide, but that the best way to do that would be to allow them to prescribe the antiviral pills. However, currently the test and treat initiative limits participating pharmacies to those with on-site clinics with a provider. These types of pharmacies are far less likely to be found in rural and sparsely populated areas. For example, CVS Minute Clinics, which would be eligible to pres prescribe antivirals under the initiative, make up just 10% of all CVS pharmacies. By limiting the ability to prescribe the antiviral pills to these pharmacies with on-site clinics and providers, thousands of other pharmacies across America are ineligible to participate, many in areas that serve some of the hardest-hit populations and populations without insurance. Additionally, pharmacists also believe that they would actually be the perfect prescribers of the antiviral pills. In fact, they say that they have already been prescribing some COVID treatments since last year under other federal statutes. Pharmacists also have extensive knowledge about medication, of course, and understand potential interactions and side effects. When asked about the issue, one professor of pharmacy even called pharmacists medication experts. After the AMA issued a statement about their concerns, the Biden administration encouraged people who do have a regular healthcare provider to continue seeing that provider for testing or if they've received a positive COVID test at a treatment site. This appears to have pacified the AMA and other physicians' worries for the time being, but there is still a very real concern for Americans without insurance and without access to a primary care physician. As antiviral pills have begun arriving at these participating pharmacies, a federal website to search and find these locations has yet to fully launch, but is expected by month's end. So, Chuck, with COVID cases falling, increased vaccine and testing availability, and now increased treatment options, Americans are rapidly moving towards a new, new normal as we hit the two-year anniversary of COVID lockdowns. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is a legislative analyst for Zealous Healthcare. Coming up, physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall reports on the unusual verdict in a whistleblower lawsuit, a decision that impacts everybody in healthcare. That story is next. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Do payers have the upper hand with your hospital? The language in commercial payer contracts drives crucial aspects of your revenue cycle including the determination of admission status and how much you get paid for a patient's care. 
Despite the best efforts of your contract managers, you might not be able to obtain the agreed-upon rate. Often, the culprit is how the contract is worded. You may be getting the short end of the stick. During an upcoming Rack Monitor webcast, learn how to turn the tables in your favor. Listen and learn from Tiffany Ferguson and Marie Steinbuck to ensure that your Revenue Cycle team understands payer requirements. Join them this Thursday, March 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern for the special webcast, Payer Contracts, Keys to Increasing Your Leverage. There's a whistleblower case. It's seldom on anybody's radar, but it's an important case for those in healthcare. And the reason why we're going to hear now is Dr. John K. Hall joins us for this seemingly unremarkable case. Dr. John, what are we talking about? Well, thanks, Chuck. The case of Sheldon versus Allergan, decided in January of this year, furthers the circuit court split regarding key concepts in false claims litigation. In the decision, the majority cites the legal experts over at our firm of Calvin and Hobbs, quoting, people have asked how to play Calvin ball. It's pretty simple. You make up the rules as you go. That quote is one of the best parts of this decision from a divided three-judge panel of the Fourth Circuit. It summarizes the frustrations in dealing with CMS regulations. I expect this decision to be appealed again to the Supreme Court because of the inter-circuit disparities and the fact that there is $680 million on the line. But for now, this decision is the law in the Fourth Circuit. The case details aren't particularly interesting, but it's a whistleblower suit against Allergan. The case turns on the defendant's knowledge of falsity, and it dovetails nicely with David's piece earlier. As a quick review, the False Claims Act imposes liability on anyone who, quote, knowingly, end quote, makes or uses a false or fraudulent claim. The statute defines knowingly as having actual knowledge, a deliberate ignorance, or a reckless disregard of the truth of the information. If someone lacks any of the legal knowledge requirements, fraud can't be proved. So it's this knowledge requirement that largely defines the outcome of this case. It's also worth noting that the liability under the False Claims Act requires no proof of an actual intent to defraud. As with most things in law, we must also consider two types of falsity, legal and factual. The straightforward case is factual falsity, and this occurs when a false statement of fact is made, such as 100 items were sold when the actual sale was 50. In contrast, legal falsity arises when the claim is factually correct, but compliance with underlying statutes, regulations, or contract terms is knowingly misrepresented. The Sheldon case and many others relates to legal falsity. This is because following the guidance imposed by statutes or regulations may not be as straightforward as we'd like. The majority in this case dispenses with the case by concluding that the defendant did not act knowingly, so it need not address the question of falsity. So why, you might ask, did the court conclude that the defendant did not act knowingly? Well, this is where things get really murky, and the three-judge panel disagrees based on potentially flawed logic and misapplication of legal precedent. But there are some transcendent messages we can glean from the judge's dispute. The basic message is that if the law or regulation is ambiguous, then under some circumstances, fraud may not even be possible. The court is divided over where that ambiguity line might be drawn, though. To take advantage of an ambiguity defense, you will probably need, first, to believe that you're not committing an illegal act. The courts are divided on whether that should be an objective or a subjective standard. Next, your belief needs to be based on a combination of several things, including the wording of the statute and regulations, any subsequent guidance related to the alleged ambiguity, and possibly your attorney's advice. I would lean heavily on that one, by the way. 
The bottom line is, be sure you exhaustively research available guidance. Use the most conservative guidance and make sure your conclusions are both objectively and subjectively realistic. The party has just begun. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, John, very much. That was attorney and physician, Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is a member of the editorial board of Rack Monitor. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. John K. Hall, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and Linnell James, who is sitting in today for Tiffany Ferguson. Now, before we go, a programming reminder. Be sure to listen to Talk 10 Tuesday tomorrow. This is a special 60-minute edition featuring 10 nationally recognized healthcare experts as we celebrate our 500th broadcast. That's tomorrow, Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Jack Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rec Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.